We're going to come to God's word now. We're in John chapter 20 today. And the title of my talk is this, Lord of the Lockdown. Lord of the Lockdown. Before we come to God's word, would you take a moment and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is inspired by your spirit. And because of that, it speaks into every circumstance, every situation, and every generation. And today we pray that you would take your written word and by your spirit apply it to our hearts and to our homes. That we would hear your voice. That we would encounter the living, risen Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. I have been married to Becky for just over 10 years now. And one of the many things you discover in marriage is this, that that the family and the home that you grew up in deeply impacts and affects how you see things. I think most of us think that everybody's upbringing was pretty much similar to ours and therefore they're going to react the same way to things as us. And I discovered very quickly that that wasn't true. I would get very excited about things, very enthusiastic about things, very passionate about things. And I would look at Becky expecting her to be the same. And she just, she was trying to be encouraging and supportive and manufacture the enthusiasm and excitement, but it just wasn't there. And I realized that Becky's family and mine were very different. In her house, everything was very calm and and quite understated in how they did things. In our house, everything was much louder and overstated in how we did things. And therefore, that influenced how we react to different situations. Probably the the best example I can give of this is when uh, we discovered that we were expecting our first child. Well, mostly Becky was expecting our, our first child. And it was the first grandchild for both sets of parents. And so we were obviously thrilled. We decided we would tell them both separately on the same night. And so first of all, we met Becky's parents in a little restaurant just outside Moira here. And we sat them down and we had dinner. And after much sort of anticipation and build up, we said to them, and we want to tell you some news. You're going to be grandparents. And they went, oh, that's really nice. Now, now I I love Becky's parents, okay? And they're watching this right now. So I just want you to know, I I think the world of you, some of you in our church have met them. They are wonderful people. But I have to be honest, I would have loved just a little bit more enthusiasm than that in that moment. But that's just how they are. They, They were overjoyed, but the joy, as the song says, was deep, deep down in their hearts. And, uh, and so I just was a little bit underwhelmed by the whole experience. But we drove from there to tell my parents. And we sat them down in the living room and we told them. And well, they jumped up and they screamed and they cheered. I think at one stage there was a conga happening in the living room. They were just so enthusiastic and so passionate. And I realized that the families just respond to things differently. People respond to news differently. And it depends on their personality, it depends on their background, it depends on all sorts of things. It doesn't mean that they're any less joyful, it just means that we show it, we demonstrate it in different ways. Well, we're going to see that in our passage today that we're looking at from John chapter 20. When people find out that Jesus is alive, that Jesus has come back from death, they respond and they react in very different ways. Let's look at John 20 and look at the start of verse 19 because that sets the context. It says this, on the evening of that 
first day of the week. Why is this important? We'll go back to verse 1 of this chapter in John chapter 20. It says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So this is the same day. It's still Resurrection Sunday. Mary went to the tomb that morning. She found the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty. She went and told Peter and John. They sprinted to the tomb. They went inside. They saw that it was just like Mary had said. There was no body there. There were just the grave clothes. But then they left and went off to whatever else they were doing. But Mary stayed around. She was weeping. She was inconsolable. She thought somebody had stolen Jesus' body and she just wanted it back so that she could anoint it for a proper burial. And then as she is weeping and devastated in the garden, somebody shows up and she assumes it's a gardener. But as she begins to talk to him, he says her name, Mary. Mary. And in that moment, everything changes. She realizes that the Lord is alive. She realizes that Jesus has come back from the grave. She realizes that her hopes that were shattered have come back to life. And she is absolutely excited. She's jubilant. She's passionate. She has every emotion you can imagine in that moment. I love what Jesus says to Mary here. In the next verse, he says, Jesus said, do not hold on to me. You remember before social distancing, when we used to hug each other, you would always have that one person who would hug just a little bit too long. Do you know that person who would just hug a little bit too tight and a little bit too long, and you'd start patting them on the back, hoping that that would be a sign that you were done here? I'm not sure if that's what happened here, but but she literally, she grabs hold of Jesus. She's clinging on to him. And Jesus kind of goes, okay, Mary, that's lovely, but I want you to go and do something. I want you to go and tell the other disciples what you've just experienced. I want you to go and tell the others that I am alive. Look at verse 18. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them all the things he had said to her. Can you imagine the excitement as it all just spills out of her? And then he did this, and then he said this, and then this happened, and it just keeps coming out. And and so that's verse 18, and then the next verse 19 starts like this. On the evening of that first day of the week. So the disciples have heard from Mary that Jesus is alive. I would be expecting a victory parade through Jerusalem. That the South Jerusalem flute band would be out in the streets singing, Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow. I would be expecting party poppers, music, disco, throwing eggs at the Pharisees, in your face, told you so. That's what the Cooney family would do. But that's not exactly what happens. Look at what we read. On the first day On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. 
the disciples, well, well, ten of them. Judas has killed himself and he's lying on a field about a quarter of a mile away. And Thomas, we don't know where he is. He's popped out to Tesco's or somewhere. He's got something else seemingly more important to do. But the ten disciples, there may have been a few others, they're hidden in a room with the doors not just shut, but it tells us the doors were locked. They were bolted. They were barred. Why? Well, think about this. It's around 16 to 18 hours since they have first heard the news that Jesus has rose from the dead. And yet they still are locked up by fear. They're still locked in by dread. They're living like Jesus is still dead. What's going on here? Well, I I think there's two things really going on. The first thing is this. Firstly, they may have heard that Jesus is alive from Mary, but they haven't experienced it for themselves. Have you ever bought something secondhand, perhaps on Gumtree or Facebook or something like that? You know, people sometimes ask me where I got it. I've got a Nissan Jeep, and sometimes people will ask me, oh, where did you get it? And they're quite surprised when I say, actually, I bought it on Facebook. And they laugh, and I go, no, I'm serious. I saw it on Facebook. It was exactly what I was looking for. I read the specs. It was just exactly what I wanted. And so that's where I got it. But here's the thing. I didn't just buy it because of what I read about it. I drove for an hour down to Five Mile Town, And I went and met the guy who owned it, and I examined it carefully. I took it out for a test drive, and it was only when I had examined it and experienced it for myself that I was willing to buy it. Before I handed over the cash, before I invested in it, I needed to see it for myself. And it's the same with faith in Jesus. You know, having faith handed down to you is great. If you were brought up in a Christian family, thank God for that. There's so many benefits of that. But one of the things that can happen is that you never really examine this faith and experience it for yourself. You live on secondhand faith that's been passed down to you, but you've never really grasped hold of it for yourself. And what can happen is that you take on somebody else's faith. And so you never really invest fully in it. You never really fully commit to it because you haven't had that personal encounter yourself. Why? It's a bit like my Nissan X-Trail. I was only willing to pay the price when I was convinced it was worth the cost. And every person listened to me, at some stage... You have got to take that faith that you've maybe heard about that was maybe handed down to you and you have got to examine it for yourself and you've got to experience it for yourself. You see, a second-hand faith will help you when the sun is shining, but a second-hand faith is not able to take you through the storms like that which we're facing at the moment. Maybe you've experienced that in the unique situation we're in right now, that you thought you had faith, but it was a fair-weather faith, and you're struggling to find faith to keep going through this. Maybe you need to dig a little bit deeper. Maybe you need to examine it for yourself while you're at home. Maybe you need to experience the living, risen Jesus for your 
self. So that's one reason for their fear. They haven't actually encountered the living Jesus for themselves. But, but I think there's another one. And the, and, and the second reason I think is, is this. I think they're genuinely traumatized by what's happened in the previous few days. I mean, just think about everything that's happened in the last 72 hours. I think they're in a place of shock, exhaustion, distress, anguish, and grief. I mean, just consider the, the emotional roller coaster these guys have been through. Thursday evening, they're celebrating Passover with their leader in the upper room. Everything is so lovely. He washes their feet. They enjoy a lovely meal. They go off on a walk. Jesus talks about being the vine and the branches. And he talks about the Holy Spirit. And then he prays for them. They're in the garden. They fall asleep. And then they awake in the darkness to noise. What's going on? They don't know, but all they can hear are voices and they see torches lit and they see swords and they don't know what is going on. And there's Judas and what's he doing with the soldiers? And why did he kiss Jesus weirdly on the cheek? Had he betrayed them? Has he betrayed the leader? And they see Jesus marched off, their leader carried away to be trialed, to be beaten, to be spat on. To be executed like a common criminal on a cross. This wasn't the way it was supposed to be. This wasn't how they had planned it. In those moments, their hearts were shattered. Their dreams were crushed. And they watched as the one that they loved, the one that they had put their faith and their hope in, hung naked on a cross. Can you imagine what that would do for you emotionally? How that would shut you down? How that would just completely confound and confuse you? How it would just make your life completely just hard to to cope, hard to comprehend what had happened. And not only that, but they're terrified because their leader is gone. And what do they do after they kill the leader of a movement? They go after the followers. So they're expecting at any moment the same fate that happened Jesus might happen to them. So not only are they dealing with the trauma of watching Jesus die, but they're dealing with the immense and intense fear that they feel inside that they could be next. And so they're locked together in this room. Every noise they hear outside, they jump. Every rap on the door, they think that that is it. You know, when this whole coronavirus thing started a few months ago, Let's be honest, most of us really didn't take it all that seriously. You know, we just thought we'll be fine. We'll wash our hands a bit more. We'll be a bit more careful. We'll stock up on toilet roll. Not sure why, but but we just thought, you know what, toilet roll is going to be the saviour of the day for this. Life was pretty much the same. I mean, we thought it's a Chinese thing. It doesn't affect us that much, and our lives are going to be normal. We'll take a few precautions. And then it began to get a little bit closer to home. We began to look at the figures in Italy and Spain, and then we began to see it uh, infect and affect our own country. And our fear levels began 
to rise. Most of us a few months ago had never heard of a term called social distancing. And now, when you accidentally bump into someone in Tesco, they jump a mile. You know, that just was not the reality two months ago. None of us could ever have imagined things would be like this. And I don't think we should underestimate what it has done and what it will do emotionally and psychologically to us in these days, but even after the virus has gone. There is a level of trauma many people have experienced in our community and in our country. People not being able to be with their loved ones as they've died in hospital. And all of the guilt and all of the pain associated with that. People not being able to hug their, ch- their grandchildren at Easter. Grandparents not being able to, to, to embrace the little ones that they love on Easter Sunday and give them an Easter egg. People who haven't left the house in six weeks because they have to stay isolated because they're particularly vulnerable. And just the emotional and the mental health issues associated with that. People who have lost jobs and lost livelihoods who don't know how they're going to be able to provide for their families. News stories every moment of every day, filling the vacuum and feeding our collective anxiety, fear, and even trauma we're going through. We have no idea what the next few months are going to look like and how this will change us individually, how it will change us as a community and as a country as we emerge from this situation. You see, it's entirely possible that we will be free from the virus, but we will still live in fear and isolation and paranoia. For many, it will take a lot longer for our emotions to heal and recover than it will for the virus to vanish. In the same way, it's possible for you to be experiencing Easter Sunday, but to be still living like it's Good Friday. That's what's going on with the disciples here. Think about it. The tomb is open, but their door is locked. They're living as if Friday happened, as if the cross happened, but Sunday the resurrection didn't happen. They're stuck at the cross. They're stuck at the place of their failure when they fled from Jesus, when they abandoned him, when they denied him. They're stuck at the place of profound pain and paralyzing fear and broken dreams and shattered hopes. They haven't moved from cross to resurrection. They haven't moved from death to life. They haven't moved from tragedy to triumph. They're living in the loss and defeat of regret rather than the freedom and the victory of resurrection. And they might have locked the doors of their house from the inside, but they may as well be behind bars, imprisoned because of the fear that they feel. I'm reminded of that great movie. Some of you will have watched it, The Shawshank Redemption, where after 25 years in prison, the main character, Red, who's played by Morgan Freeman, he says these words. He says, talking about prison, he says, these walls are funny. First you hate them, Then you get used to them. Enough time passes, you get so you depend on them. That's 
institutionalized. First you hate them, you get used to them, but then you depend on them. And I think some of us are going to struggle with that as we come out the other side of this. What used to be a normal level of fear can grow to the point where it controls us and it consumes us. What used to be abnormal becomes normal in our lives. And actually we can't imagine any other way. We just accept it. It's just the way things are. It's just how life is. It's just how I am. For you, you know, it might not be the coronavirus. It might be something else. It could be a fear or an emotion that comes from something else. It could be hurt, disappointment, regret, guilt, shame, your past. Something that happened maybe years ago, maybe many years ago, but there was something that happened. Somebody did something, an event occurred, and you've got stuck in that moment. And while your circumstances have changed and your situation has changed and your life has changed, you keep reverting back to that moment. It's a bit like the U2 song. It says, you've got to get yourself together. You got stuck in a moment and you can't get out of it. You keep saying that later will be better, but you've got stuck in a moment and you can't get out of it. Some of us have got stuck in moments of failure. Maybe you did something that you never thought you would do. Maybe you treated somebody in a way and you deeply regret how you hurt them. Maybe you made some decisions that were awful and they've put you in a place you never thought you would be. Maybe something happened to you. People hurt you. People abused you. And something awful happened and it was terrible. But you're not there now, but you may as well be stuck there now because it has become a prison that encircles you and keeps you confined in the past. And because of it, maybe like the disciples here, you're living behind locked doors, not physically, but emotionally. Maybe like the disciples, you're behind walls, walls of fear, walls of shame, walls of doubt, walls of regret, walls of distrust, and you don't want to let anyone in. You've isolated yourself because you're never going to let anyone hurt you like that ever again. But look at what happens. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Right into the middle of their fear and their trauma and their anxiety and their anguish walks the risen living Jesus. He meets them right at where they're at in their place of their greatest weakness and vulnerability. They should have been out looking for him, but they weren't. So he came and he found them. How did he get in? The doors were shut. The walls were thick. It's because this is a resurrected Jesus. He's still very much human, but he also now has supernatural attributes. It's a new kind of life. It's a resurrection life. They could touch him. They could eat with him. So he, there was continuity. He was still solid. He was still human, but he was now immortal. He could never die again. So he could do things that nobody else could do. And behind the walls of their failure and behind the locked doors of their fears, Jesus meets them right where they 
are. And I want to say to you that that same Jesus will meet you right where you are today. For someone who has conquered death and overcome the grave, no wall is too thick and no lock is too strong to keep him out. Jesus still walks through walls, walls of fear, walls of shame, Walls of regret, walls of doubt, walls of failure, walls of sin, walls of disappointment, walls of shame and guilt and death. Nothing can keep him out. And he can heal those places in your soul that no counsellor can reach, no doctor can reach, no psychiatrist can reach, no church can reach, no religion can reach, no lover can reach. And when he meets you in your place of weakness and fear and vulnerability and anxiety and dread and isolation, look at what he speaks over you today. Jesus came, verse 19, and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then verse 21, again Jesus said, Peace be with you. The word is shalom alakim. It's a common expression in Israel. But Jesus was using it in an uncommon way. Just a few days before when he was with the disciples in the upper room, he said, my peace I leave you, my peace I give you. I talked about that a few weeks ago. Jesus is speaking shalom. Shalom means whole. It means complete. It means nothing missing, nothing broken. It means lacking nothing, perfect, full. That's the peace Jesus wants to speak to you today. Shalom. He wants to speak nothing missing, nothing broken, complete fullness into your broken situation. Wholeness, life, restoration, peace, supernatural peace that can only come from him. And when Jesus speaks things change. When Jesus speaks, storms are stilled. When Jesus speaks, bodies are healed. When Jesus speaks, minds are restored. It's a tangible experience. When Jesus speaks, it shifts things and it changes things. When Jesus enters our failures, our fears, our insecurities, our phobias, our pain, he speaks peace. He speaks shalom. He speaks wholeness. Nothing missing. Nothing broken. And our fear turns to joy. That's what happens here in verses 19 to 20 as we finish up. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Notice he shows them the scars. Even though he was resurrected, he still had those scars. And when we get to heaven and see him face to face, he will still have those scars. We read that in Revelation. He was like a lamb who had been slain. That the man, Jesus, who is now at the right hand of the Father, still carries those scars. But they are not scars of defeat. They are scars of victory. Those scars are a reminder that through his pain came our peace. 
Through his suffering came our salvation. Through his blood came our forgiveness. Through his death came our life. Because of his scars, our scars can be healed. Because of his punishment, we can know peace. And for the disciples and for us, look at what this leads to. It says the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Their fear turns to joy, not happiness. Happiness is transient. Happiness comes and goes. Happiness is dependent on circumstances and situations and what side of the bed you get out of and what sort of day you're having. That is not joy. Joy is something deeper. Joy is something that God gives us and God can change your despair and your hopelessness and your fear and your anxiety into joy today. Not just joy, but they were filled with joy. It was overflowing joy. When Bible translators a number of years ago came to translate the, the Bible for the Inuit people of the Arctic, they got to this particular verse in John 20, and they didn't have a word to translate it. They were stumped. You see, the Inuit language doesn't deal in abstract concepts. And so they struggled to find a verb which would convey overjoyed. They, they, they just they couldn't, they couldn't think of one. But then one of the translators found the perfect solution because he had noticed how close the bond was between the Inuit men and their husky dogs. And he had seen that every morning when these Inuit men would get up and have their breakfast and come out, the husky dogs would get so excited that they would run up to them and they would lick them and they would wag their tails. They were so thrilled and so excited. And so the translator suggested this, that they used this in the Inuit translation of the Bible. It says this, the disciples wagged their tails when they saw the Lord. It's not fantastic. I love that. The disciples were so overjoyed that they wagged their tails. Resurrection people are a people who are so filled with joy from God that we are a joyful, tail-wagging people who cannot be consumed who by fear and cannot be contained by dread. Why? Because Jesus is alive and that changes everything. It changes your past, it changes your present, and it changes your future, and it takes despair and turns it to overflowing joy. Finally, Jesus doesn't just give his presence or his peace or his joy, but he breathes new life into them. He refreshes us with the breath of heaven. Look at verses 21 and 22. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Bible scholars and commentators have spilled so much ink on this, trying to figure out what's going on here. Because Pentecost doesn't happen for another 50 days. Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit was poured out on these disciples. And so they've tried to figure out, well, are they filled with the Spirit here in John 20 or are they filled with the Holy Spirit in Pentecost? What's going on? Well, when you read the language here in John 20, it says Jesus, he breathed the Spirit on them. And that immediately reminds me of the start of the Bible, 
of Genesis 2, verse 7, where God creates Adam. And look at what it says. It says, Then the Lord formed a man from the dust of the ground, and he, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Some scholars have described this as the divine kiss, where God kissed man, and man came spiritually alive. God breathed into the dust. And man came spiritually alive. And he was able to relate to God, and God was able to relate to him. This was before the fall. And the fall changed everything. The, the fall put up a barrier and a wall between us and our creator. But now that Jesus has risen from the dead, he has undone the fall. And everything is different. And so that breath in our spirit, which was gone because of sin, Jesus now rebreathes the life of God back into us. Because everything has turned around through his death and resurrection. And I think that's what's happening. But I also think something else is happening. I think they don't need a big infusion of power right now. They'll get that at Pentecost. I think they just need a refreshing breath from heaven. I think they're tired and they're weary. They're exhausted and they're frightened. And they just need refreshment. They just need life. They just need something to keep them going. I know the feeling. Sometimes I don't need a big infusion of power from heaven. I don't need a big conference. I don't need, uh, you know, some big Christian festival. I just need the breath of God. I just need refreshed. I just need him to draw close and whisper and speak into my situation. And just bring that refreshment and that new life and that new hope and that ability to just to push through what I'm going through. You know, a number of years ago, when we were leading a church in inner city Dublin, we went through a very difficult year as a family. Ministry was very, very tough that year. And our little boy was just two at the time. And that was a tough year. And for, for in our household that year, there wasn't a... A week where one of us wasn't sick, we were struggling. It was the hardest year we've ever had as a family. It was the hardest year we've ever had in ministry. And at the end of that year and during the summer holidays, we went to the north coast of Ireland here to a little place called Port Stewart for two weeks. And while I was there, I was crying out, God, will you touch me? I'm weary. I'm exhausted. God, will you come and speak to me? Will you refresh me? Will you touch me? And absolutely nothing happened. It felt as if my prayers were going no higher than the ceiling. And the end of the two weeks, we were due to drive back to Dublin. We started the trek on a Sunday morning from the north coast down to Dublin. It was about a three or four hour journey. And we decided to break it up. We got to Belfast and we decided we'd stop and we'd nip into a church called CFC, Christian Fellowship Church, one of my favorite churches in the world. And we thought we'd go in and we'd worship and then we'd continue on our journey. And we went in and uh, quietly made our way in and, and sat at the end of a row because it was the only seats there were. And, uh, and my, my friend and the, the founder of CFC, Paul Reed, was preaching that Sunday. And he was preaching about the generations in the church and the place that God has for them. And he was kind of going through every decade. And at the end of every decade, as he talked about them, he would get the group of people who, who were uh, that age to stand and he would pray over them. 
And at the time I was 39. So we got to the decade of 30 to 40 and I just about fitted into that. And at the, at the 30 to 40, at that stage, he, he got us to stand, just as he had done with all the other decades before that. And I remember standing there, just like everyone else around me. But in that moment, as Paul prayed, something happened. It was the strangest experience. But I felt literally as if a, a, a garment, as if a coat from heaven was placed on me. I could almost see it. I could feel it. It was a tangible experience. And it was, it was really surprising because I hadn't expected anything to happen. But I literally, there's a verse in Luke that it says they were clothed with power from on high. And I felt literally as if God had put this garment on me. It wasn't dramatic. It didn't, you know, it didn't fall over. It was nothing like that. And I looked around and everybody else was just getting on as normal. And I sat down. And I thought, you know, maybe I just imagined that. Maybe I just, I'm too tired and I, I made it up. But I knew something had happened. And the service continued. Then at the end, Paul invited the prayer ministry team from the church to come up. And one man came walking past who was on the prayer ministry team, a guy probably in his 60s called John. Uh, and he stopped, and I had never met John at this stage. He stopped at me on, on his way up the church and he said, I don't know who you are. But I saw what happened there when Paul prayed. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I literally saw a coat or a garment come down from heaven and land on you when Paul prayed. And I was shocked because I thought it was just me. I said, I, I thought I'd imagined it. He says, no, I saw it as clearly as could be. I was standing behind you and I watched as this garment came down and landed on you. That was just what I needed. And that day, I'd been crying out for God to touch me, to fill me afresh, to renew me. And he had met me in my place of brokenness and in my place of weariness and my place of, of just not knowing how I could continue to give when my own tank was empty. And I want to say to you today that Jesus wants to breathe new life into you. He wants to speak into your situation. It won't be dramatic it won't be that exciting. It may not be like my experience, but Jesus, if you ask him, will come close and he will just breathe new life into you. He will refresh you. He will renew you. He will lift up your spirit. He will give you the energy to keep going through what we're facing right now. Maybe that's what you need. Maybe you just need new life today. Maybe you're overwhelmed with fear. Fear for the future. Fear for your family. Fear for your finances. Maybe about a job or relationship. I want to say to you, Jesus will come and meet you where you're at. You might have walls up. You might have your doors locked. They won't stop Jesus. Jesus who overcame death. Who defeated the grave. No wall and no door can keep him out. And so I'm going to pray for you right now that in your isolation, in your confinement, in your containment, in your fear, even perhaps in your anxiety and in your trauma, that Jesus will come and breathe new life, new hope, new joy into your situation. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray for every person 
listening to my voice. Father, would you breathe new life by your Holy Spirit? Would you come into their living room, into their car, wherever they are? And Holy Spirit, would you just breathe life that displaces despair and darkness and distress? Just breathe life that energizes and heals and refreshes. Just breathe your life that we might be people who live as resurrection people, not getting stuck on Good Friday at the cross, but celebrating that Jesus is alive.